As most, if not all of you know, I grew up here in Brazil. I was born and raised here. But from time to time, my family would, would travel back to the U.S. where my parents are from. And there was one skill or chore that my American cousins had who were my age. And, uh, but it was something that I had never been able to experience myself here in Brazil, partly because of cultural differences, partly just because things are done differently. And that chore was mowing the lawn. I don't even know if, if some of you know what that is, but it's, it's cutting the grass um, in, 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 at your family's home. And the home I grew up in, first of all, had very little grass to begin with here in Brazil. And secondly, my parents hired somebody who came you know, every two or three weeks, I'm not sure how often. And uh, he was responsible for cutting the grass, but I remember he did it with big shears. He didn't even do it with a lawnmower. So as a kid, I remember watching my cousins and it, it looked so fun to mow the lawn. My cousins hated it. They were like, oh, this is, uh, I don't want to mow the lawn, Dad. I don't want to do this. But to me, who had never gotten to do it, it looked incredibly attractive. I mean, after all, I'm an adolescent guy, and that's a machine. And it makes a lot of noise, and it spins around, and it cuts the grass. I'll, I'll, this is confession to you. I actually, to this day, really enjoy mowing a lawn. I really do. Uh, maybe it was because I was deprived of the privilege as a kid. But the first, the first time I ever got to mow a lawn, I remember we would, when we would travel to the U.S., we would be there for short periods of time. We were always staying in, in the homes of others. And when I was about 12, I started offering um, to the hosts, would you like me to mow your lawn? And it was always fascinating to me that uh, very few took me up on it. And I realized that later on it was because they knew something that I didn't know, which was this. I didn't know how to mow a lawn. I knew the theory. It seemed pretty straightforward, right? I mean, this thing's going, and you just push it around and you mow the lawn. The first time I did it, I realized I didn't even know how to start the mower. I didn't even know how to turn the thing on. Not only that, but I also was not aware that it wasn't just about going in random patterns until everything's cut. Particularly people who care about their lawns, they want it done very intentionally, and they want straight rows, and always this direction that way, and then this direction that way, so that it ends up nice and uniform and beautiful. I didn't know any of that. But here's the point. Sometimes we know what needs to be done, and we don't know how to do it. Most if not all of us who call ourselves Christians, would say that in a crisis we should pray. Okay? Are there any of you that disagree with that statement? In a crisis, we should pray. No? Good. We're all on the same page. What great unity. But do we have an understanding of how we should pray in a crisis? I'm assuming that most of us, myself included, in a crisis, our first prayer would be for the crisis to stop, for there to be relief. And while that may not be wrong to pray that way, it's not the way that the early church prayed when they faced their first crisis. So this morning, as we continue to work our way through the book of Acts, 
We want to watch and listen as the early church prays facing their first crisis. The first time that they've experienced some pushback from the religious authorities, the first time that they've begun to taste persecution. Now, for those of you that are paying attention, you might realize that I preached on this passage on March 29th. I think that was the third week of our Brazilian lockdown of the pandemic. But the context today still applies, right? We're still in a crisis of worldwide proportions that's overflowed from health into politics and social issues as well. So while some of the themes of the sermon will mirror those from the 29th of March, the approach is going to be a little different. And therefore, some of the applications will be different as well, because we're looking at it today in the context of the broader book of Acts. Now, what's just happened? Peter and John healed the lame man at the door of the temple, and that created an incredible uproar there in Jerusalem. Hundreds, if not thousands of people heard about it. They came running. They were in shock, awe. And Peter takes advantage of this crowd to preach the gospel. In the middle of his sermon, he's interrupted by the temple guard and the Sadducees, who are very upset with what he's promulgating. They arrest Peter and John. They put them in jail overnight. And the next day, they submit them somewhat to a a sort of pseudo-trial before the religious leaders, before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin can't decide what to do with them. They haven't really committed a crime. They haven't done anything wrong. But at the same time, they're a threat to uh, the power of the Sanhedrin. So they say, okay, we're going to let you go, but we forbid you from speaking to anybody else in this name, meaning the name of Jesus. Peter and John refuse right to their faces. They say, nope, we're not going to follow your... You're, we're not going to follow your suggestion because um, what's right for us to follow God or to follow you? So they leave. And this is where we're going to pick up the account right now. As Peter and John leave the Sanhedrin, as they're released, they immediately go to the community of believers. And that's where we'll pick up the story today. We're in Acts chapter 4. I'll begin the reading today with verse 23. On their release... Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. We're not going to get through this whole prayer today. So I'm going to do two principles this week and then finish with the third principle next week. But what we're looking at is principles of how the church can pray in a time of crisis. The first principle that we see reflected here is that Peter and John pray 
with the community of God. They pray with the community of the church. One of Luke's favorite words in writing the book of Acts is the word together. He uses it 24 times, and most often it refers to activities or attitudes of the believer, describing their unity. Peter and John are released from prison. The first thing they do is return to the community of believers, and they share all that had happened to them. And after they share, Peter, John, and all the believers that were present, the text says they raised their voices together in prayer to God. I did not serve on the same ship that Mateus Homos was on, but I served on a different ship with the same organization called the Dulos. And while I was on board, I was exposed to a style of prayer that I had never experienced before. On board the ship, we called it Korean style. Some of you may have experienced Korean style prayer before. A few months later, after experiencing this on the ship, I was in South Korea for several weeks, and I experienced this in every South Korean church that I visited. They had this practice of praying out loud together all at the same time. And uh, for someone from the West, it was both profoundly moving and very disconcerting. I had never experienced something like that before. They would start praying and everybody in the room is praying out loud. And let me tell you a difference between Calvary out loud and Korean style out loud. So a few minutes ago, I asked you all to pray, um, you know, out loud for Mateus Homos. I was standing up here. I could hear little murmurings here and there. And that's fine. I'm not, this isn't wrong. I'm not criticizing us. But when the Korean churches prayed, it was an overwhelming noise because they weren't praying like this. They were praying loudly to the Lord. Now, I have no idea if that's how the early believers prayed. I don't know if they prayed Korean style. I don't think such a thing existed. At least I wasn't known by that. Maybe they played ancient Near Eastern style. The point is, and the point that Luke's making is they were together in it. They were unified in their prayer. The entire community is participating together. And whether that means all praying at the same time, whether that means they were taking turns, whether that means that some were praying and others were agreeing silently in prayer, regardless, they were together. Now, as we apply this principle today, it doesn't mean that we should never pray alone. It doesn't mean that we should never pray silently. It doesn't mean that we should never pray with a small group or just one or two other people. And it doesn't mean that anytime we pray, the entire church must pray together. But it does reflect a reality about the early church. They already had an understanding of the crucial importance of the community, of the body of Christ. It also reveals that the apostles valued the community. Even though they were the leaders, they didn't despise or belittle their brothers and sisters. The first thing they did was they went to their brothers and sisters and shared what had happened to them, brought them into the story, in essence, asking them for their prayer and support. So they were all involved together. Now, of course, we know that there's a difference between a personal crisis that affects yourself, maybe your family, a smaller group of people, 
and uh, a broader, more corporate crisis, like a worldwide crisis like the coronavirus. Uh, so I understand there are different kinds of crises and that we would pray in different ways regarding those, a crisis that affects the whole church. We would be much more likely to gather together and pray together regarding that crisis. But I would suggest that maybe the coronavirus is such a, a crisis. It affects all of us, though, in different ways. It affects the entire body as we seek to understand how we move forward together, and yet at the same time seeking the safety and inclusion of all of our members. Now, on the other hand, the personal crisis affects a far smaller proportion of our people. But even in those crises, the personal crises, the community has a role to play in prayer. In Galatians 6.2, Paul writes, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. There are many different ways that we can carry each other's burdens. But I would say that one of the most obvious ones is by prayer. Especially because it's something that everyone can do. Everyone can do this. It's not limited to those who are trained in a special way. It's not limited to those who have more money. It's not limited to those who have special talents. Everyone can carry the burden of another through prayer. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how young you are. Right, Chiahi? You can carry someone's burden through prayer. By the way, I wasn't calling him out because he was doing something he shouldn't be doing. Okay, just mentioned him. You got it? We can all do that. All do that. Now, there are two sides to that, though, if you think about it. One is that uh, we have to be prepared to pray for others. But what's the flip side of that? As a member of the community of God, we have to be willing to open ourselves up also to others, to allow them in to what's going on, so that they may then also carry our burdens and pray. It's a two-way street. The point here, though, is that Peter and John pray together with the community of God. The second principle that we see reflected in the prayer of this, this church is that they pray under the sovereignty of God. They pray under the sovereignty of God. In this prayer, it's short, right? But there is more focus on the sovereignty of God than on any other topic. It's the primary subject, the primary source of hope for the community. They pray more about the sovereignty of God than they do about their requests. Okay? And before we look at seven aspects of sovereignty that's reflected in this very brief prayer, I, I just want to start by saying that the sovereignty of God protects us when we pray. And maybe that's a strange thing to consider. But his sovereignty provides an umbrella of protection because we may not realize when we ask certain things or pray in a certain way that if God were to answer those prayers, the end result might be destructive. We don't know. There's a, a, a really silly movie that was produced, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago called Bruce Almighty. Maybe you've heard me talk about this before. Some of you are chuckling about it. Others of you are unwilling to admit that you've watched it. But... Um, in the movie, the, the main character um, is, is very upset with the way his life is turning out. And so he's complaining against God 
God, why would you do this? Why do you let this happen? And so God, God Morgan Freeman, um, a, appears to uh, the character and says, okay, you've been challenging me. Here's the deal. I will give you all my powers. You will have all the powers of God for the, you know, for the next few days or whatever. You can do anything you want. There's only two guidelines. You can't make anyone fall in love with you, and you can't mess with free will. Okay, those are the two guidelines. Um, so the main character is just is ecstatic and so excited, and, and he starts realizing he, all the things he can do. And, of course, he starts using all these powers for his own, for his own good, right, just to further his own desires. But then he starts hearing all these voices, all these voices just keep speaking in his head and he opens his email and they're full. And what it is, is people are praying and these are all prayer requests that are coming to him now. And the way the, the movie maker illustrates it is it just comes up on his email, thousands and millions of emails. So it shows the main character, he's just typing madly, you know, reading and answering these requests and he finishes and then he looks at his inbox and it's millions more. And so in utter frustration, he types in and it zeroes in on the screen. You can see him type in, yes to all. And he hits enter. Now what's interesting then, and I appreciate how the movie makers did this, that fact that everyone got what they wanted causes the world to descend into chaos. And imagine that. Because, I mean, how many of us might pray with selfish motives? How many of us in a time of weakness might pray that God would stick it to somebody else that we're upset with or angry with or bitter with? What about people that are praying contrary things? And anyway, the, the point I want to make with this is, is that if we all got what we wanted, the world would be more chaotic than it is now. And the sovereignty of God, the fact that he is in control, the fact that he knows the thread of each person's life and that he knows the end game and has perfect vision, that sovereign view, that sovereign power protects us as we pray. So that oftentimes a no as an answer to prayer is part of the protection of God's sovereignty. The first aspect of, of his sovereignty reflected in this prayer is God's sovereignty over self or God's sovereignty over the individual. We see this in the way that the believers address God. They say, Sovereign Lord. Now, that word Lord, it's an accurate word, but in English, it's the same word that interprets a number of different Hebrew and Greek words. In the Greek, here in this particular passage, the word uh, is despotes. And it, it's actually the word from which we get the word despot in English sort of an all-powerful, almighty ruler. But it's a rare word in the New Testament. It's only used six times, three times of God, three times of Jesus in all the New Testament. It's a unique word, a unique way to address God because it's the word that was used by a slave or a servant to address their master. I don't think any of us like the idea of seeing ourselves as slaves. Of course not. Seeing ourselves as servants, well, that might be slightly more palatable, but still, there's something in self that rebels against both of those attitudes. But when the early church addresses God in this prayer, in this crisis, the word they use is acknowledging his complete 
sovereignty over them. His right to do with them whatever he might choose. Because he is the master. He is Lord. And they see themselves as his slaves, his servants. This is not a word that is used lightly. You know, in Portuguese, I often find myself referring to people I don't know as chefe, right? You know, like the, the garçon, the, the waiter in the restaurant. Oh, chefe, can you do this for me or whatever? Or the guy at the parking lot, you know, whatever. Chef, do I, I, I use that word very lightly. I don't literally mean that he is my chief, right? So we have to understand that this word is, is a weighty word. And it's reflecting an understanding on the part of Peter, John, and all the early believers that they are completely under the authority of God. The second aspect of sovereignty, uh, which they immediately go into, is that God is sovereign over nature. Completely sovereign over all the created order. Um, We see, they say, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So everything that's created, that's under God's sovereignty. He created it. He made it. He made it. It's his. Um, I think the, the logical conclusion from that is that God is also sovereign over hurricanes and earthquakes, tsunamis, things that we might refer to as natural disasters, yet they come under the sovereignty of God. They move on to the third aspect of sovereignty. God is sovereign over the nations. In this prayer, Psalm 118, a couple verses from Psalm 118 are quoted. David wrote them, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? You know, all the nations, all the people groups of the world, no matter how powerful they are, They plot against God in vain. That means they have no power against God. They are under the sovereignty of God. There is no geographical region over which God does not have authority. There's no people group, no country, no alliance that is beyond the control of his power. Fourthly, God is sovereign over world leaders. They talk about the nations. And they talk about the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one, who is Jesus. Today we could say presidents and prime ministers. Back then, kings and rulers, today presidents and prime ministers. Because to us, they seem so strong and so inaccessible, so far off. We sometimes live as though even they are too strong for God. I know we don't really think that, but perhaps because they seem so powerful, we live as though God were not really sovereign over them. But you know, God is sovereign over a president. God is sovereign over the authority of the person who's helping you at the Popa Tempo. Whatever the authority, whatever the human authority is over you, God is sovereign over that and the image that we're given is the nations and rulers and kings that they're raging in vain against God the actual picture is of a little child who doesn't get their way 
and doesn't get the candy they wanted, and so they fall on the ground, they scream and cry, kick and, and, and punch, and yet all of that is, it, it's like nothing. The, the power of God over the nations and over, the, over human rulers is like the power of the parent over the little child who doesn't get their way. I think one of the most profound and striking examples in scripture of God's power over human rulers is how God deals with King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. I don't know how many of you remember that account, but Nebuchadnezzar, in his great arrogance, essentially sets himself up as God and challenges the authority of God. And the result of that is that God humbles him, really humiliates him. He, he allows him or turns him into an animal, basically. His, the scripture says his fingernails grew super long, his hair grows long, he's covered with hair all over his body, and he goes out into the wilderness, and he's living in the forest, and he's eating grass, and he's drinking the dew of heaven for years and years and years, until Nebuchadnezzar himself, after seven years, it says that Nebuchadnezzar finally said, until I acknowledged the Holy One of heaven. When he acknowledged the sovereignty of God, it, it was, I wish I could have seen it, but he's restored. Whereas for basically he had gone insane and his, almost an aspect of his humanity was removed during those seven years and he comes back to himself and God restores him to his position of leadership and to his kingship. Remarkable illustration of the power and sovereignty of God over human leaders. The fifth point is the sovereignty of God revealed in Scripture. Um, so these, these early believers, our, our forebears, they had experienced the sovereignty of God in their lives, but they knew of his sovereignty primarily through Scripture. And they quote Scripture here in their prayer. I don't want to take this out of context, but I hope that you see this repeated theme already in just four chapters, how in witness and now in prayer, the word of God is the foundation. Peter preaches, he preaches from scripture. Peter and John preach, they preach from scripture. The believers are gathered together to pray, they're praying scripture. When all the believers are as one, they devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching. What was the apostles' teaching? What was the content of the apostles' teaching? It was the word of God. As the church... We need to know the word of God. We can't underestimate the power of his word in witness, in prayer, in every aspect of our lives. Here's the sixth one, the sixth point. Sovereignty over human rebellion. The almighty God is sovereign even over the rebellion of humanity. In this prayer, the early believers allude to Herod and Pilate. That's interesting because that's the Jewish authority and the, the Gentile authority. And then they also say the Jewish people and the Gentile people. Again, this emphasis that Luke manages to draw in, everyone is responsible for the death of Jesus. The Gentiles can't just blame the Jews and the Jews can't blame the Gentiles. All of us are guilty of the blood of Christ. So is there any greater rebellion against God than to kill his son? And that's in their prayer, that's what they're saying. This is what Herod and Pilate, the Jews and the Gentiles did. They killed his son. There's no greater act of rebellion. 
All the nations rage against God. The kings of the earth gather their armies to rebel against him and his anointed one. And yet God is sovereign over all of it. Their greatest attack, their crowning achievement of anti-God activity becomes the moment of greatest victory. The cross becomes the way to salvation and redemption and hope. And interestingly enough, the, the, the text says that in spite of all their effort to destroy Jesus, they're only doing what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So even in their rebellion and their anti-God stance, they're doing what God had already ordained to happen. His sovereignty over human rebellion. There's a song that we sing here from time to time called Sovereign Over Us. I don't know if you remember the bridge of that song. Even what the enemy means for evil, you turn it for our good and for your glory. That concept is taken from the story of Joseph. I don't want to go into that whole account. But Joseph ends up before his brothers, his brothers who had sold him into slavery. And now he's become the second highest in all of Egypt. And he says to them, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. The final point, and I think the most difficult one, is that God is sovereign over human suffering. Peter and John had just suffered persecution. They had been publicly humiliated and arrested, had spent the night in jail, and then had the, the religious leaders tried to intimidate them into submission. And that was the first resistance that the church has encountered. And if you've read Acts, you know it's going to get much, much worse. But these men are disciples of Jesus. And Jesus himself, the Son of God, the Savior, the Almighty God, suffered. And not only did Jesus suffer, but according to this prayer, his suffering was determined beforehand by God. And that's a really hard thing, I think, for us to get our minds around. It's a hard thing for us to accept. See, God is not reactive in the sense that we are. So as God's in heaven, God the Father in heaven watching Jesus be betrayed and um, beaten and crucified and killed. God's not in heaven saying, oh no, what are we going to do now? This wasn't the plan. This wasn't how it was supposed to go. I had redemption all laid out and now they're killing him. They're killing him. Okay, Holy Spirit, come here. We got to have a confab. We got to figure out how we're going to turn this around. How can we make this better? God had intended it from the beginning. Prophet Isaiah says, it was his will that he should suffer. That's hard. But there's also comfort in what happened with Jesus. Because even Jesus, the son of God, as he's facing his greatest crisis, he prays, right? And what does he pray? Jesus, the son of God, the almighty, the all-powerful, the savior of the world. What does he pray? Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. So when you're suffering, you're in good company if you ask God for relief. But if we ask God for relief, we also have to continue to the end of Christ's prayer, don't we? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Surrender to the sovereignty of God.
But the suffering of Christ was not outside the plans or outside the sovereignty of the Father. And it's in this sovereignty here that the early believers find their comfort. Even in the suffering that they're about to face or have already faced. And even under the threat of the religious leaders. They find comfort in the sovereignty of God because they know even suffering that he allows or sends is within his control. And scripture says he will never give us more than we can bear, even though it might feel like it. Any suffering that we're facing today, and I don't want to make light of anyone's suffering. I know there are a number of you who are suffering in different ways or who have suffered That suffering is not happening apart from or outside of God's sovereign control. And I think that that truth right there, it's one of the greatest challenges to our faith. It's hard to trust God. It's hard to have faith in him when we're suffering because we know if he's sovereign, he could stop it. And yet, at times he allows it to continue and we don't know why, at least in the moment. The promise of the gospel is never that we will not have suffering. Jesus himself said to his disciples in John 16, 33, he said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. It's a contrast. He said, in me you will have peace. In the world you will have trouble. It's a promise that Jesus gives his disciples. You know what? You're going to suffer. You're going to have trouble in this world. And historically, if we follow the lives of the apostles, they did have plenty of trouble in the world. But then Jesus says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So even though we may suffer, it is always under the power of the redemption of God who has already overcome the world. So that means the suffering is not forever, number one. And number two, it's not purposeless. It's not random. It's not a despotic ruler who is toying with his subjects. It is for a purpose. And the hope of the gospel is that that suffering is going to bear fruit someday for his glory and for our good. And not only that, but it's going to come to a final end. And I love the very intimate image in Revelation of God wiping away every tear from the eyes of his daughters and his sons. And that is such an intimate, loving image I mean, think about how intimate that is. You know, you don't walk around on the street just reaching up to random people, you know, wiping tears away from their eyes. You only do that with those with whom you are the closest and most intimate. And that's God the Father with his children. And on that day, when every tear is wiped away, then there's not going to be any suffering anymore beyond that. The challenge that faces us in a crisis is to endure any suffering that comes our way in the certainty that God is in control And that the suffering will bring good fruit in his time. That doesn't make the suffering easy. But it it is a reason for hope and for faith. To close out this part about praying under the sovereignty of God over human suffering. uh, I'm going to just briefly use an example that I've used before. Because I think it illustrates this concept of how God's working toward a final end. We all know the verse that says that all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. We love that verse, right? It's a good verse. But maybe sometimes we take it out of context 
maybe sometimes we miss the fact that he's saying all things will eventually work for good, meaning each, each process, each experience is moving toward a final product that is good. And the example I've used before is that I like to make brownies. It's fairly obvious that I don't like to just make them, but I like to eat them as well. Brownies are good. But if you take all of the ingredients of brownies on their own and you lay them out on the counter, so the flour, the sugar, the raw eggs, the cocoa powder, the, the baking powder, the salt, you lay all these things out and you invite people, hey, you know what, this is what goes into brownies. Here's a spoon. Feel free to eat from each one of these ingredients. Even sugar, even just plain sugar, there's only one person I know of on earth that loves plain sugar, and that's my son, Micah. Um, when he was like three years old, we couldn't find him anywhere in the house. We went to the kitchen. He was under this table in the kitchen. He's smart. He had pulled a chair in after him, so it was really hard to see him, and he had the sugar bowl, and he was in heaven. Just, just eating raw sugar. But you know, uh, salt is good, but a spoonful of salt is not. Have you ever had a mouthful of flour, just plain flour, like taking a big, nice big spoonful of flour? Cough, sneeze, can't breathe, dries your mouth out. Raw eggs, anybody here a raw egg fan? I'm not a raw egg fan. Here's the point. When each of those ingredients is mixed together in the proper proportions by someone who knows what they're doing, and then it, they are baked for an appropriate amount of time. The end result, all of those ingredients, all that time, all that heat works together for something really good. And so God in his sovereignty in the life of each one of us and in the life of us as a community is in the process of mixing those ingredients. And sometimes that's ingredient of joy, suffering, pain, hope, relief, forgiveness. He's mixing all of these together and in his sovereignty because he knows what needs to happen and how it needs to happen for the final product to be good. We're not done with this prayer yet. Next week, we'll finish up by asking the question, what did the early church ask for? So, so far they haven't asked anything, which is pretty remarkable. I usually get into my asking pretty early in my prayers. The early church didn't, and we'll see what they asked for. Um, so far we've seen that, that they prayed with the community of God, and I, I just want to reemphasize the importance of community in prayer, corporate and small group, the importance both of praying for others and the importance of being willing to open yourself up so that others can pray for you as well. Secondly, even though in a way it's a, it's a minor point in this passage, it's a recurring point in Acts. Read, study, and seek to know the word of God. Peter and John were unschooled, ordinary men, but they knew the scripture. And sometimes maybe we have this idea that if we never read the Bible, when we need it, the Holy Spirit is going to miraculously put the words of God in our minds. That's not how it happens. 
We invest ourselves in the word and we invest the word in ourselves. We learn it, we know it, we read it. It gets stored in our memories, it gets stored in our hearts, then it's there and then the Holy Spirit brings it out when we need it. I think this is what's happening in this prayer here. So I challenge you again, make it a daily practice to be in the word of God. And here's a little practical suggestion. Memorize scripture. Memorize scripture. I, I, I talked about last week that, you know, my parents made me memorize 15 verses a week when I was a kid. So one verse a week is not too much to ask, okay? I don't memorize 15 verses a week anymore, by the way, just to let you know. You know, I don't know if my brain could handle that anymore. The younger you are, the easier it is. Uh, make this a habit. If you don't know where to start, where should I start? Genesis? Sure, you know, start Genesis 1-1 and memorize through Revelation. Actually, in all reality, if you don't know where to start, start with Psalm 103. Let me just recommend, suggest that to you. And make it a practice to, to memorize. Just start with one verse a week. One verse a week. It's not too much. And then just add on to it. Each week, add the next verse. As I've done this, it's remarkable how those verses come up at important times. And they're right there. They're applicable the Holy Spirit applies them to specific situations when we need them. But that's because it's already in you. It's already in your mind. It's already in your heart. And that's a step that we have to take to invest ourselves in the word of God. So I encourage you again to do that. And then finally, meditate on the sovereignty of God. I say the word meditate. That's a fancy word. Let me just say think about it. Consider it. And in your prayer, start out by praying and reflecting back to God all the ways that he is sovereign. If you're in a personal crisis now or simply part of the larger worldwide crisis that is this pandemic, take time to reflect on his power and his control. There is peace and hope in that. If you're a believer in Jesus already, if you've confessed and repented of your sin and submitted to him, then as his child, you can take refuge under that umbrella of his sovereignty. He's in control, and nothing can happen to you that is behind, beyond him.